It is such a gift to be able to gather with you guys today, to be able to worship our Savior, Jesus. Um, I, I love being able just to hear you sing, and, and this is one of the special things about the gathering. Is, it's not just that we come and we hear people lead in song, or we hear people pray, or we hear people preach, but as the people of God, we come and worship alongside one another, our Savior and King. Amen? That, that, that's, that's the gift of what this is, of calling our hearts, our minds, back to who we are and, and why we exist and what we exist for. So thank you guys uh, to our worship team for, for preparing the way for us. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in 1 John. Uh, we're going to be finishing chapter 2 and getting in a little bit to chapter 3, and we have a lot to cover, so we are going to dive right in. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the seat back in front of you, and we'd love for you to take that if you don't have a copy of God's Word. So we're going to walk through this text and, and see kind of what God has for us, and then we're going to respond this morning through the taking of the Lord's Supper. And so uh, let's go ahead and jump straight in. And just for a little context, if you weren't here last week, we talked about antichrists. Uh, so you missed it. You can go back and download it online. Uh, but what's happening is, is John is creating a dichotomy that he wants the churches that he's writing to to see. That there's, there's really two different paths or two ways of living. One is walking as children of God and the other is walking as children of disobedience or of, of the devil. And so talking about antichrist, he's trying to expose those who don't know Jesus, who are false teaching and leading those astray. And now on the other side of that, he's painting a picture for what, what does it look like to really be a child of God? What we just sang about uh, coming out of Romans 8, uh, the words that we just sang. And so we're going to jump right in chapter 2, uh, verse 28, if you'd read with me. Uh, and as we go through, just as a way of uh, just helping you process the word. We want to help you grow in, in your study of the word as we grow as well. So one of the things that's really important if you're studying the Bible on your own is when you see consistent key phrases or key words through a passage of scriptures to take note of that, highlight that, circle that, underline it, because it helps us understand what the main point of the passage is. And so there's going to be two phrases you're going to see a lot to this text that really unpack for us the purpose of what John's saying. One is he's going to talk about children a lot or being born of God, this familial language. And so if you take notes, take note of that as you walk through the text. The other is the word practices. You're going to see that a lot there. And those two go hand in hand to help us understand what this passage is about. Verse 28, and now little children abide in him. That's where we ended last week in verse 27, abide in him. He comes right back to it. So that when he appears, talking about Jesus' second coming, we talked about this last week, Jesus is coming again, he's coming soon, we live today in light of the day when Jesus comes again, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming or at his advent, at his arrival. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And John is actually taking that directly out of another letter he wrote called the book of John, John 3, 3, a statement that Jesus said. See what kind of love, chapter 3, verse 1, the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Amen? I love that statement. I love this verse. See what kind of love the Father has shown to us. It's the love that we sang about. It's the love that we are going to experience as we take of the Lord's Supper. That Jesus was broken and he bled and his blood was shed for us so that we could be redeemed. This is that kind of love the Father has given to us. 
that we should be called children of God, so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, dearly loved ones, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So as Christians, we are growing in our Christ-likeness. We are coming more like Jesus every day, but there is a certain reality of who we will become that we won't see in full until Jesus comes again. And when he's saying that we will be like him, he's not saying that we're going to be omniscient or we're going to be God or anything. That's not what he's saying. But the characteristics of sinlessness and and, and full love of God and, and those kinds of things that are made and that are known in Jesus will be known in us when he comes again. Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There's transition, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's living outside of a law. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Talking about Jesus. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has seen him or known him. John's already talked about this, that if, if we have sin in our lives, the love of the Father is not in us. In chapter 1. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. So he's just being very straightforward up front. This is how you know. If you want to know if you're a child of God or a child of the devil, there's only two camps. You fit in one. Here's how we know. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Would you pray with me? Father God, we ask this morning that through the Holy Spirit that you'd open our eyes to see your word, that you give us ears to hear it and hearts to receive it and obey it and understand it. We need that this morning. I just pray, too, for anyone in this room who is not a child of God, that even as we're walking through this text, that you'd make that uh, real to them. They would see it for what it is, and that they would see you as their Savior, and that you would rescue them. For those who are children of God, that what we see in this passage would confirm who we are, but also call us to pursue you more as we rest in you day by day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this passage uh, helps us understand what it means to be children of God. And if you are a parent, you know uh, when you come home, sometimes things are really normal and sometimes they're not normal. And if you have little kids, you know, or have had little kids, you, you sometimes you, you know that when you open the door, you really have no idea what to expect when that door opens. And so there was one day I got home from work and I, I saw this. I think we have a picture that was a little bit out of the norm. My children had grown some facial hair. Uh, and um, they were trying to be like their father, which I don't have that awesome of a stash, but, you know, they got the facial hair thing down, and you can pray with me that my daughter does never grow a mustache like that. That would be, for her sake, we're, we're hoping that doesn't happen. But, but you know this, if, if you're a parent or been around kids, children love to pretend to be their parents. 
Uh, a lot of times I'll come home and my littlest son, Tripp, he's two years old, he'll be wearing my shoes through the house. He thinks that's so cool. Uh, a lot of times our children, when they're young, they'll, they'll want to have the same profession that we have. Well, why? Here's why. I, I think that God has hardwired it into the human heart for us to long to be like our Father. And, and that's the point that John is making in this passage and in this text. This is our big truth this morning, is that children of God reflect their Father. Children of God reflect their Father. That This is what they do. That Just like we've been hardwired to want to be like our parents, and none of our parents are perfect, and there are things like them that we don't want to be like, and so, you know, we all know what it's like to say, I don't want to be like my mom and dad, and then you become an adult, and, you sometimes, and then you realize I'm becoming my parents, right? You understand what that's like. But the same thing in a much greater sense should be happening spiritually for those who are children of God. We should long to be like our Father, and we should constantly be coming more like our Father. The children of God reflect their Father. And so what John wants the church to understand that he's writing to, and what he wants us to understand as God's people, is that if we truly are children of God, our lives more and more reflect the Father. And if we are not children of God, that will come out in the way that we live our lives. Because the way that we live will not be in line with the Father. And so we talked about this some already over the last few weeks. We live in a gap of the now and the not yet. The now that Jesus has come. He's made a way for salvation that we can be adopted into his family and we are becoming. But it's not fully realized yet that Jesus is coming again and there's a gap in our growing. Our position and who we are in Christ does not match up with our practice yet. That, that's growing. It's catching up. But for us this morning, the question is, okay... If we live in that gap, how do we know that we are children of God? And so I think this text asks and answers three questions that we would ask this morning. The first question is, what does a child of God look like? What does a child of God look like? And the second question we're going to wrestle with a little bit is, how does a child of God engage and relate to sin? What do we do with this sin nature that we have? Then lastly, what does it take to be a child of God? How does that happen? And so John answers these questions for us that a lot of us have. And so let's just dive straight in. First question, what does a child of God look like? There's a lot in this text. Let me hold out four things that we see here. The first one is this big idea. Children of God abide in Jesus. If you are a child of God, you will abide in Jesus. Verse 28 of chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him. And we talk about abiding a lot. It's because all of the Christian life is abiding in Jesus Christ. Resting in what his finished work in our place is, what he has done for us, our position. And then on the other hand, pursuing him, becoming more like him. And this is really what gets fleshed out in these verses that we've read. Children of God, they abide, they rest in their position, and they pursue. And we see that in the abiding, that abiding produces a confidence. Look at this again, verse 28. Little children abide in him so that when he appears, he is coming again, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. Now what's he talking about there? 
He's talking about this, that when you abide in Christ, when your identity rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his sinless life, sacrificial death, resurrection, in your place, in my place, we repent of our sin, we believe in Jesus, and we hope in him. He's our identity, he is our savior, that we have a confidence. But for those who have not placed their hope in Jesus Christ, and he is talking about unbelievers here in light of everything that we've read in the first few chapters of John. Those who do not know Christ, they do not have confidence. In fact, when Jesus comes again, all they will know is shame. And this is why we as the people of God want to carry the message of gospel to those who don't know Jesus. So they won't be in this other group who are pushed aside, who are shrinking back in shame because they've not hoped in Jesus, they've hoped in false saviors instead. And so how does abiding produce a confidence? Well, it produces a confidence because it's a confidence not in what we do for God, but in what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. I can be confident not because I live a perfect, sinless life. I can be confident because Jesus did. I can be confident not because I paid the weight of my sin debt against God, but because Jesus paid the weight of my sin debt against God. Amen? A few months ago, we had something that as homeowners, you never want to happen. Uh, we, it was early spring, beautiful outside. We're doing yard work. We're getting the yard ready for spring, summer. And my dad came over, and he goes down the basement and comes out, and he's like, uh, did you know your basement's flooding? Uh, and again, it's like, no, we didn't. And so we go down, and there's water damage everywhere. And that, there's a sinking feeling when something that, that happens to anybody, but especially to someone like me. Who, who has a hard time knowing the difference between like a hammer and a wrench. Because not only do I have a problem, I have a problem that I cannot fix. And I didn't have a lot of confidence, one, that I could do the job, but two, I didn't have a lot of confidence in our insurance company about whether or not they would come in and take care of the job for us. But after the insurance adjuster came and he found, they figured out that it was a pipe that had broken, uh, he gave us a guarantee a guarantee that the insurance company would cover so much of the damage, and I had a physical guarantee from him. You know what that produced in me? Confidence. Confidence that the job is going to get done, the repairs are going to happen. Not confidence that I would be able to do it, but because of someone else, this was going to take place. This is the confidence the gospel produces us in a much greater level. We can walk in confidence as a child of God because of what Jesus has done. So we rest in him, but then we also pursue him. Look at verse 29. He says, if you know that he is righteous, talking about Jesus, you may be sure. You can take it to the bank. You can be confident. This is going to happen. That everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So people who are born into God's family, they will live a righteous life. And that word practices is really important. It is is a present imperative action. It's a continual work. It's something that we are called to do, and it's a continual thing. And so what, what John is saying is that people who generally are children of God, they are disciplined in their pursuit of righteousness. We work not to earn God's favor, but because we have God's favor. Dallas Willard said it this way, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. 
We cannot earn our way before God in our position, but we are called to work. We are called to strive. We are called to put sin to death. That's what practicing righteousness is. And then living in holiness, pursuing Christ, becoming more like him. It's telling people about him, being ministers of reconciliation, living our life for the glory of God, as Pastor Josh said earlier. That's what it looks like to pursue righteousness. And so we throw everything we have in our lives to make Jesus known, to become more like him. I love Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You can write this down if you're taking notes. Here the Apostle Paul describes it this way. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. You don't do it. You don't earn it. It's God's work. But listen to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are to be people who pursue righteousness. We work hard. We labor hard. We pour our lives out as a drink offering. And James said, faith without works is, is dead. Faith reveals, is revealed by our works. It's revealed by our practicing. So, genuine children of God, they rest in the finished work of Christ, but then they work hard for the glory of God. They pour their lives out for the sake of the gospel. And it's spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. And this is what children of God do. They work hard to be like their father and point others to their father. And this is what we carry with our lives. It's something they hunger for. In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say it this way. Blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you long to put sin to death? Do you long to make Jesus known? Do you long to become more like Christ? Are you pulling the things, every hindrance aside, as Hebrews 12 would say, to become more like Jesus. Children of God do this. Let me give you three more really quickly. Second, children of God taste and see the extravagant love and unconditional grace of the Father. They taste and they see. Not just tasted, not past tense, but present tense. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. See. See what kind of love. Again, this is present. This is active. He's saying, behold Look right now, today, set your gaze on the love of the Father. Set your gaze on the gospel. See what kind of love. This is not just any kind of love. It is a certain type of love. It is a sacrificial love. That word love is agape, the, the deepest form of love. See, look today, taste and see that the Lord is good. See what kind of love the Father has loved us. What kind of love has he loved us with? Romans 5, 6 through 8 answers that question. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though maybe for a good person one would dare to even die. But listen to this. This is the beauty of the gospel. But God shows his love. He demonstrates his love for us. And that when we were still sinners, when we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. So I want you to capture the gravity of this. And I want this to just, if you're a Jesus follower, this room, blow your heart up this morning. When he says that we are children of God, he's saying that 
We have been adopted into God's family. We become sons and daughters of the king, but I don't want us to get lost on what that means. Because when most of us think about adoption, we, we think about adopting a sweet, little, precious baby that doesn't have a mom or a dad. And that is adoption. But this is not our adoption as, as Jesus followers. Think of it this way. Can you imagine your worst enemy? The, the person who stabbed you in the back, the person who's lied to you, the person who's deceived you, the person who's hurt you, the person who's hurt those who love you and who you love dearly. Whoever you think the most wicked person in the world is, that person. So picture that person and picture going up to that person and saying, I want you to be my family. I want you to become my son, my daughter. I want you to get my inheritance. I want you to have my name. I want you to carry my message to a lost and broken world. It's one thing to adopt someone who is outside your family, inside your family. It's a very different thing to adopt your enemy into your family and to give them the keys of the kingdom. But friends, this is what Jesus does. This is what God has done for us. And people who are children of God, they they know that. It overwhelms them. It, It causes us to worship. It fuels a worship in us because we see this is extravagant love. This is extravagant grace that we can't deserve. We can't fathom. This is what God has done. Not only does he adopt us into our family, his family, but then he gives us his message. He sends us out to be his representatives to a lost and dying world. What a gospel. What a good news. What a savior. And children of God live in that understanding. They are continually being shaped by that love. Third, children of God look less and less like the world and look more and more like Jesus progressive verse one the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him beloved we are God's children now what we will be is not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him as he is saying the world's not going to know you the world's not going to understand you and when you become a child of God you progressively look different from the world and Christians we live life in the margins we are strangers we are aliens we are foreigners This world is not our home. We don't live for the kingdoms of this world. We live for the kingdom of God. We don't worship the saviors and kings of this world. We live for a different king. And just like Jesus didn't look like the religious Pharisees, but he also, he loved the sinner, he loved the prostitute, he loved the tax collector, but he lived differently than them. Everyone took notice because He lived for a different kingdom. We too, as children of God, we live for a different kingdom. Our lives should look different. Which leads us to the fourth idea. Children of God pursue purity because their hope is in Jesus. And so we pursue purity in our knowing and in our thinking and in our affections, in our loving and in our desires, in our wanting and in our actions, in our doing. We lay aside every sin. We put away the phone, we put away things that distract and things that distort and things that fill our mind with things that are not holy and of God. Why? Because we're better than people? No. Because we want to be like Jesus. We want to be pure like he is pure. 
So he says we make ourselves pure. He's not talking about in the eyes of God, but we pull every weight and hindrance, every sin out of our lives so that our lives might look more like the Father. So that when your kids see you and your coworker sees you and your classmate sees you, they see a picture of your Father. And it should look different. It should look different you. It should look different in me. And when we pursue purity, we grow in our love for Jesus. There's a pastor, he has this statement, it works in relationships, but it's also in our relationship with God, and it's that purity paves the way to intimacy with people, but also with God. So we long to be pure. Jesus himself, Matthew 5, 8, said, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. So children of God are progressively becoming more like their father. We reflect the Father in the way that we live. So what does that have to do with the children of God, the child of God, and sin? That brings us to the second question. How do children of God relate to sin? Because we aren't perfect. We are being made into the image of Christ. So what do we do with this? And we don't have a lot of time to dive into it. And so this Wednesday night behind the message, we'll take more time to wrestle through this. You can ask questions about this. It's a great way to be able to go deeper into how we deal with sin in our lives and what does that mean with our standing of God. But I do want to give you two really important thoughts on this out of this passage. The first one is this. Children of God are not sinless. However, they are saints. Children of God are not sinless. However, they are saints. They have a different identity, a different behavior, and a different pursuit. Look with me in verse 3 or verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. What does that mean? It means that if you are not a child of God, you are living outside of any kind of law. You set your own law for yourself. What is right, what is wrong, you determine. There's no law governing you. But for the child of God, it's different. There is a law that we are under. You might say, well, I thought we've been saved by grace and we're no longer under the law. We're not under the old covenant law, but we are under the law of Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6 too, that we are now under the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Well, John, who wrote this book, tells us in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give you, Jesus said, that you would love one another just as I have loved you. What is the law of Christ? Love everyone with the same kind of love that Jesus loved us when he died on the cross. It's a greater love. It's a deeper law. It's loving God most. It's loving others more. And so those who are not children of God, they live in a law outside of God. They set their own standards for their own life. They judge their morality based on everyone else around them, and they make the measuring stick themselves. But those who are children of God, they live by a different law, a law that does not say that I'm accepted because, I'm do, because of what I do, but because of what Christ has Done. Let's keep going. You know that in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. This is really important. If we were supposed to be sinless as believers, he would have said that here. He would have said, no one who abides in him sins. But notice that's not what he said. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. It's this practice word practicing unrighteousness, continuing in sin. 
So what he's saying is this, that we are not sinless. If you're a child of God, you are still going to sin. But you're not going to keep on sinning. You're not going to keep on an unrepentant sin. That there's a war going on. Romans 7 describes it well. What I want to do, I don't do. The things I do, I don't want to do. Who's going to save me from this flesh? Thanks be the God who gives the victory through Jesus Christ. And so for believers, we are not sinless, but we are saints. We don't live for sin anymore. That's not who we are anymore. We don't walk down those paths anymore. We pray that God would make sin bitter in our lives so that Christ might be sweet, as the Puritans would say. Which leads us to a second idea about child of God and sin. Children of God cannot live in continual unrepentant sin cannot live in continual unrepentant sin. Can we sin? Yes. Do we sin? Yes. Is there a war? Absolutely there's a war. But we cannot live in continual unrepentant sin and be children of God. There's a pattern of sin in your life that is continual and it really doesn't bother you unless somebody finds out and you stay in it. That's a normal thing. You should question whether or not you are a child of God. Why would you say that? Let's read together. Now this is heavy. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Why does he say that? Because there are people who will be deceptive and say, you know what, you can continue in sin and be a child of God. And he's saying, no, you cannot. We cannot. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice, a continual action, we talked about practice earlier, that continual action, that ongoing pursuit of something, of sin, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is why Jesus came. Listen to verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it's evident that we are children of God, and here are the children of the devil. So he's just laying it out very clearly for us. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And that last statement is so important, and we'll get to this next week as we continue on chapter 3. But what John is alluding to here and pointing us to is that ultimately sin is less about the action, and it's more about the heart that our actions flow out of our heart. And so this not loving a brother or sister in Christ is revealing a heart issue. That ultimately our hearts are not in Christ. They are still in the flesh. They're still in sin when we have hatred for other people. Why? Because people who've experienced the love and grace and forgiveness of God forgive others. How can we withhold forgiveness as people who've received a greater forgiveness from God? You can never be wronged by anyone more than you have offended and wronged God, the ultimate king in the universe. And so people who have received forgiveness and grace cannot help but extend it. Is it hard sometimes? Sure, it's hard sometimes. The gospel changes us. So children of God reflect the Father. They practice certain things, and they run from, they, they flee certain things. This is what it means to be a 
part of God's family. So that leads us to the final question before we go to the table. How do we know if we are children of God? What, what does it take to be a child of God? What does it take? John tells us, children of God have been born again. How do you become a child of God? You must be born again. Look at verse 29 of chapter 2. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Look at verse 9 in chapter 3. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. How do we be born again? That's a great question. And the way that we have an answer to that is from another letter of John. It's in John chapter 3. And here, John ha- or Jesus has a conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he knows the law. He's an elite religious person. Comes to Jesus at night in darkness because he doesn't want everyone else to know he's going to Jesus. And he asks Jesus, teacher, how can we enter into the kingdom of God? And then Jesus said this in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus is confused. We would be too. What does that mean? How can you be born again? And Nicodemus is going to ask, do I like climb back into my mother's womb? Like that seems really, really weird, Jesus. Right? Jesus says, no, you don't understand. That's not what it means. You know the law. You know the history of Israel. You understand what it means. You need to be made new. You need, as the prophets would say, your heart of stone to be turned into a heart of flesh. Friends, listen to me. God is not interested in making a better version of you. He wants to make a brand new person. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Jesus doesn't want to remodel your life. He wants to make you a saint. This is what it means to be born again. It's not becoming a better version of who you were. It's becoming a completely new person in Christ. Well, how does that happen? Thankfully, Jesus gives us the answer. The band can come up. They're going to begin to lead us as we go into the Lord's Supper. Most of us know John 3.16. But before John 3.16, we have John 3.14 through 15. This is, how, this is how Jesus answers Nicodemus about what does it mean? How can we be born again? And Jesus reaches back to the Old Testament. He reaches back to the book of Numbers and the story about the children of Israel in the desert who they had disobeyed God, so God allowed these serpents, these, these uh, poisonous snakes to come into the camp. They began biting people, and people began dying as the venom coursed to their veins. And it's a picture of sin. This is what sin does. Sin leads to death. And so God told Moses, go make a bronze serpent, put it on a stick, put it in the middle of the camp. This is what Jesus says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish 
could have life. When we were dead and dying in our sins, God made a way for us to be born again. And it's by looking to Jesus as our Savior and our hope. And that's how we have new life. That's how we become new in Christ. So I just want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. This is an opportunity just to respond and reflection before we come to the table. And Pastor Michael lead us through that time. But here's a couple things I want you to think about, a question I want you to ask. One is, if you were examining your life, does your life look like a child of God or a child of the devil? Is it becoming more and more like your father, pursuing the things of your father, or is it being a law unto yourself, gauging your morality against everybody else, justifying the patterns of sin in your life, being a slave to sin instead of a free son or daughter. We sang about that earlier. No longer slaves to fear. We are children of God. If you are a child of God, are you walking in righteousness? Are you pursuing righteousness? What needs to die in your life today? What is that war of the flesh and the spirit that it's time to let the spirit take control and it's time to do some tearing out the eye, cutting off the hand, aggressive pursuit of Christ. This morning, the table calls us to examine ourselves and respond to the gospel. Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters that we would be children of God, that a watching world would see it. Our pursuit, the way we live our lives would display it. And for anyone in here who is not your child this morning, they would see that. They would respond in worship. That you paid their sin debt, that you made a way to adopt them into your family, even as thieves and robbers and murderers. This is what you do, and we thank you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this morning. Amen.